2: The merchant ships, rather slow, lumbering ships, could not even make headway. They would be either scattered by the size of the sea and the ferocity of the gale. Very often they'd just be driven back, so they'd advance no no distance to.
3: That was Jonathan Dimbleby talking about the battle at the Atlantic.
4: But the price that he demanded, and again, he was rather delusional, Franco. He said he wanted his empire back, that the price for helping the Axis powers, was to have his empire back, and Hitler, well, clearly, didn't want to know.
3: And that was Marian Milne, producer of a new BBC4 series on the history of Spain. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of December 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First up this week, it's Jonathan Dimbleby, a journalist, author, broadcaster and historian who is the presenter of BBC Radio 4's Any Questions? Jonathan's latest book is the history of the Battle of the Atlantic, the Second World War naval clash that would prove vital to the conflict's outcome. I visited Jonathan in his Devon home a
2: little while back to
3: find out more. How important do you think the Battle of the Atlantic was to the overall outcome of the war?
2: The Battle of the Atlantic was fundamental. Had the Allies not won the Battle of the Atlantic, we would not have won the war. It was the means by which all the uh, resources came to Britain, without which Britain would have initially collapsed, without which we wouldn't have had the weaponry, the industrial capacity to make weapons, the Americans would not have been able to get troops across for D-Day, there would not have been a D-Day, it's as fundamental as that.
3: There are stories now that say essentially Britain with no real danger of losing the war. Do you think Britain could have lost the Battle of the Atlantic?
2: Oh, there's no question, in my view. With the benefit of hindsight, you can see that in the end we were going to win, although it was finally judged at certain points. That's for the benefit of hindsight. At the time, it appeared that we could very easily lose the Battle of the Atlantic, and had Hitler not been so obsessed with the manic urge to invade and conquer Russia and destroy Bolshevism and establish Lebensraum, had he heeded the advice of uh, Admiral in command of the Kriegsmarine and Admiral Dönitz, and to put the resources there, it could have been a very close argument. There was no doubt that, that in, in the current mind there was a constant sense of anxiety and at some points alarm. So, from my mind, it's sort of academic whether in the end we could or couldn't, because what is intriguing is the degree to which it appeared that it was uh, an open question for so long. And although when you look back you can see that the majority of the convoys got through without being attacked. It only took a small number of vessels to be lost with all the demands on vessels elsewhere on the high seas for the reduction in supplies to be so great as to inhibit the potential to wage war. Oil supplies dropping to very low levels, food supplies dropping to the point where the Ministry of Food was worried about the ability to distribute and feed the people without causing uh, such shortages that morale would be severely affected. Churchill said nothing caused him greater anxiety than the U-boat threat. Roosevelt said that this war will be, in the end, won or lost in the Atlantic. If Hitler can't win in the Atlantic, he will lose the war. So the importance of it, the vital importance of it, is without any question... And the belief that it was an open question as to whether or not it could be won was very powerful.
3: What kind of impact did the Battle of the Atlantic have on the other war fronts? I mean, how important was it to some of the other great theatres?
2: It was important in positive and negative ways. It was important because it made a significant, much, much debated, but significant contribution to Stalin's ability to wage war after Barbarossa. Whether it was 4%, 10% of total supplies, it was in key areas, particular kinds of weaponry, trucks, particular special metals, resources to make sure that the factories could function and produce the huge output that was delivered. And to start with, only the Arctic could provide the access because the other routes weren't, uh, either weren't available because they were too dangerous or because they weren't at a... A high enough practical level you couldn't deliver through Persia effectively. So that was very, very positive. It was critically important for the North African campaign. And don't forget, the Western war effort started in Africa, not in Europe, thanks to Churchill's extraordinary diplomatic skill and tenacity and chutzpah. The landings in North Africa would not have been possible if the Battle of the Atlantic was not at least being fought with the resolution. It prized resources away from uh, the Pacific War, which is why it was a constant debate mm-hmm. for the Americans as to how far and how much the Battle of the Atlantic should be supported. Roosevelt got it, but a lot of his advisors, military and civilian, were against what they saw as the sucking of resources away from other needs, defense, American defence needs, to support the, the Atlantic lifeline. So it was pivotal. Directly and indirectly, it was central to the conduct of the Western War and had a major impact on Stalin's eventual success in Russia.
3: Which of the two sides do you think was best prepared for the Battle of at the Atlantic?
2: Neither side was very well prepared. The Germans had, in the person of Dönitz, who was the in chief of the U-boat fleet, had a clearer sense of the character that it would take. The British and I've written quite extensively about this in the book, came to the war having misread the lessons from the First World War. So they underestimated the capacity of the U-boats to damage the British routes, the Allied routes across the Atlantic. They underestimated, and they did not have enough escorts to protect the convoys. They were torn between protecting the convoys on the one hand and protecting the the channel from invasion on the other, and there weren't enough ships to go round. They didn't plan escort tactics effectively enough because they didn't think there would be a big problem. So the British were very ill-prepared and the Germans were under-prepared. The Germans were torn internally between Admiral Rader, who believed particularly the surface vessels, posed the greatest threat, and Dönitz, who thought that the U-boats would pose the greatest threat. This is contentious territory still, because there's no doubt that the Scharnhorst, Bismarck, and the other great ships of the line, the surface fleet, uh, the commerce raiders, as they were called, had the capacity to cause significant damage, and therefore they had to be kept, from the British, they had to be kept away from marauding through the Atlantic. And when we talk about the Atlantic, you're talking about a huge thing. You're talking about the South Atlantic as well as the North Atlantic. It is a vast seaway. And that, and that itself is linked into the Indian Ocean, into the Arctic Ocean, into the Baltic Sea, etc. You're talking about the oceans. And high-speed, powerful, individual merchant commerce raiders supported by oils, oilers, oil tankers and destroyers could wreak Great damage. They didn't, in fact, very much so. Donitz, on the other hand, believed that the U boats, properly resourced in large enough numbers, would be very much more effective at the tonnage war, as he called it, destroying more tons of Allied uh, material than the Allies could uh, replace. So, if you could, if you could sink a million tons of Allied shipping, then the Allies could only build Three, four hundred thousand tons, you were winning the war, and it would be an attritional war that would eventually result in victory for the Third Reich.
3: And it seems the impression I've got from reading the book is that the U boats seemed like the more effective way to destroy allied shipping. And, and had they got the numbers of U boats that Dernitz yeah. had, had wanted, I mean, is it clear they could have won it that way? Yes.
2: He had, he had, an, uh, he set a rather arbitrary figure of 300 U boats, uh, and he started off the war with. Sixty or so. I'm, the figures are not not precise. They live Sixty or so, and of course not when you when you have a fleet of sixty, you have those that are on their way to and from the battlefield in the Atlantic. You have those that are undergoing repairs because they had a pretty rough time at sea. So you only have at most a sort of third of those which are actually operational. So you have to say twenty U-boats. Sometimes less than that, and they had to be operational there. Sometimes they were called off to go to the North Sea or to go to the Mediterranean, um, or to go to the South Atlantic, and so they were spread quite thinly, and the amount of damage they were able to do for such a relatively small number of, of U-boats was quite astonishing, particularly when they operated in wolf packs, directed by Dönitz personally, from Wilhelmshaven and then latterly from the Bay Biscay, from Carnaval near the Port of Lorient, in the Bay of Biscay, once the French had been neutralised they were astonishingly effective. One convoy which caused immense sense of horror in March 1943, that rate of attrition was not sustainable. It was insupportable from the British and Allied perspective. Uh, But it was only then that that the Air Ministry was persuaded that the very long-range bombers that had been theoretically available for nigh on two years, uh, 18 months anyway, could be deployed in the mid-Atlantic fill what was called the Atlantic Gap. And once they came in, within two months, the story of the war changed, so that by May 1943, to all intents and purposes, the, the, the Battle of the Atlantic was won. Once the Battle of the Atlantic was won, It was a racing certainty that eventually the Second World War would be won. Until the Battle of the Atlantic was won, it was an open question as to whether the Second World War could be won.
3: You mentioned earlier how the addition of long-range bombers in 1943 finally ended German hopes in the Battle of the Atlantic. What do you think were the main factors in that Allied victory in the end? Was it the bombers or was it without other things as well? A combination.
2: The U-boats were more frightened of aeroplanes than anything else. The speed at which an aeroplane could come out... Of the sky. Once they realized they had radar so they could be detected from over the horizon, even if the airplanes couldn't destroy, they kept driving them under. And if they were driven under during daytime, then they lost contact with the convoys and they couldn't fight, so they constantly had to keep going under to avoid the airplanes. So, but there was this very large area, uh, 180,000 square miles, if my figure is roughly right of the mid-Atlantic, which could not be reached from Iceland or Greenland or the or Northern Ireland or Scotland or the United States by the existing fleet of bombers, even long-range bombers, they needed very long-range bombers, which had the capacity to go halfway across the Atlantic, into the Atlantic Gap, stay there for two hours or more, and then go back. And those were not made available in enough numbers to Britain. They were given to first of all they they came across and were given to the air ministry and the air ministry in an extraordinarily dogmatic dog in the manger way held on to these planes rather than making them available to the Admiralty, which led to a which contributed because they'd also not given enough of the standard long range bombers from the Admiralty, to a ferocious internal struggle between the Admiralty and the Air Ministry which one of the animals likened to being more bitter I a bit more bitter than quotes our, our war against the Hun and it was very vicious and one of the salient features of that of course was um, Bomber Harris who believed was convinced that strategic bombing of Germany, area bombing of Germany, terror bombing of Germany which is what it was and was unknown to be at the time and identified at the time although of course not made public at the time was the most effective way of bringing Germany to heel, and that it was a waste to use aeroplanes to support ships. The Admiralty countered not very strongly. I mean, a lot of the book is about the weak, relative weakness of the case made by the Admiralty for what was a very strong case compared with the bombastic, persuasive power of the Air Ministry. But at one point, Admiral Pound, who was the first sea lord, was moved to say effectively... Well, that's fine, guys. Uh, you do your bombing, but you need fuel. Mm. If we don't get our oil tankers across the Atlantic, you won't have any fuel to do bombing. So, wise up. But it took immense pressure, and from uh, early in 1942 onwards, a constant battle to try and get long-range, very long-range bombers out of the the air. And the first lot that came were too small in number. They were constantly having to be repaired. Astonishingly, though, once the ministry, the air, the air, ministry, air vice marshal had uh, consented, had realised, this is in March 43, mm. that they, they were needed, they were rushed in, and it only took 40 of them to transform. And you, you asked me the question whether it was just them. They were absolutely fundamental in that area, but of course, other things counted intelligence, about which there's plenty more to be said, weaponry, and the skill and numbers of... The skill of the captains, escort captains, and the uh, the tactics they had begun to deploy effectively and in enough numbers to uh, thwart a U-boat attack which was already at its peak because it didn't have the, enough U-boats to, to prevail.
3: Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about intelligence. So mm-hmm. how important do you see the role of Bletchley Park and the Code Breakers in, in sort of turning the tide of the Battle of the Atlantic?
2: Well, they were... In my view, not as important as people like to believe, especially if they watch movies. For this reason, of course, Ultra, thanks to Turin and his team, broke Enigma. The naval Enigma was more complicated and it was much better protected than the the land-based Enigma. So while Enigma played an important part in the Desert War, there were key periods, particularly when a fourth wheel was put on the... Uh, Enigma machine that was codenamed Shark by the British, when we couldn't break in. And we couldn't break in... First of all, the delays were quite considerable, although they were amazing efforts. I mean, the the, the skill with which Bletchley Park and Hinsley is the other big name at Bletchley Park, who interpreted the decrypted messages and realised that if you could get the cribs for the Enigma code... From the weather ships, which were masquerading as trawlers, the German weather ships, then you could break Enigma. That was a brilliant strategic operation. But notwithstanding that, they updated Enigma. They did not believe that Enigma could be broken, which it could be. Donitz they, was they, they kept thinking, is, is there, is there a, have we got a spy in the camp? How is it that convoys are being diverted? And they were diverted. But, and this is the really big but, um, which didn't emerge until the end of the war with a very secret report called the Thai Report, which revealed... I, I was pointed to this by the official historian of Bletchley Park. He said you really ought to look at the at the limits of what was achieved by Enigma, because BDienst, the German code-breaking system, was breaking into the naval codes almost with impunity, and particularly into the messages being sent by naval ships to merchant ships. There was an underinvestment in security by our side. So although it was quite possible for Enigma when it was functioning, and it did happen to be in that last three critical months after April, May of, of 1943, although it was functioning quite efficiently at key points, they were breaking our codes and we weren't breaking theirs. And even when we were breaking their code and were diverting convoys accordingly. The orders to divert were being picked up by the Germans and by Dönitz, who was able to redirect the submarines. But when he was redirecting the submarines, Enigma was picking it up. So there was a real... that both It was sort of blind man's buff was going on. An extraordinary encounter. And I think that's been... It's not unknown, but it's been underestimated, as, a, as it were, as a, as a phenomenon. And, of course... During the, the incredible destructive period of between January and December 1942, Enigma did, well, did, didn't break into code. It wasn't until the early spring of '43 that we broke into Enigma again. So there was nearly a year, 11 months, where we were not able to penetrate the German codes at all. You know, that was a big killing time. Killing being the word that was, is used by everyone. Another unfortunate phrase.
3: Something that that occurred to me when I was reading your book is what an experience it must have been to be on these ships. Can you put into words what it must have been like to be a sailor on a British convoy going through this experience?
2: Well, I've I've tried to write about it. I've got lots of extracts from people's diaries and letters to illuminate that, because there's nothing like the first-hand account. In some ways, it was like the experience of war more generally, which is long hours, days of discomfort and boredom, Punctuated by moments of extreme danger and terror. And uh, that is a very stressful experience. You have to be very resilient. Of course, when the weather was lovely, balmy skies, you might think all was well. But it, when the weather was good, was the most dangerous time because the U-boats could attack. When you were going through uh, appalling storms, hurricanes... With unable to move the ships could, the, 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 the merchant ships, rather slow lumbering ships could not even make headway they would be either scattered by the size of the sea and the ferocity of the gale very often they 'd just be driven back so they'd advance no no distance towards would you you 'd be going one way or another across the Atlantic you would get so far and then you would be driven back by the weather Your, the, the screws the repellers would be out of the water so often they couldn't maintain uh, headway and the, the ships could not drive forward because it was too dangerous, they could break up. Extremely uncomfortable, very cold, very frightening and endless sense of day going into night. The storms in the winters and the Atlantic winters in 41-42 particularly and 42-43 were of an atrocity that people could not recall as if the elements were whipping up in tune with the scale of the horror of the Second World War. And that's in the Atlantic. In the Arctic, hurricanes were no worse, but of course it was far colder near the polar ice cap. And in both, though, ships would ice up. And once, once a ship ices up, it gets very top-heavy. And in a bad weather then... You know, the seawater would freeze on the, on the decks, it would freeze on the stanchion posts, it would freeze on the guns, it would freeze on the masts. So it had to be hacked off all the time. There would be constant parties, one after the other, working away, hacking away at the ice. You got soaked, you were damp. Getting warm was almost impossible. So I think it was a horrendous experience. If you were in a U-boat, if you were underwater in a storm you were relatively safe you just went down 100 feet or more. There was a gentle swell in silence, but if you were on the surface, of course, it was just the same. But you could only be down for a certain amount of time because your air supply was limited, so you had to go up. People always thought that the U-boats operated by underwater firing of mm-hmm. torpedoes. In fact, not all, but most, was coming to the surface at night. They would track on the surface during the day, knowing they could go under. When they were under the water, they only travelled seven knots. On the surface, they could travel 16, 17 knots. That was the, the Mark Seven. Mark 7 was the was the largest proportion of the fleet. And so they had to come up in order to keep with the fleet, otherwise they got left behind.
3: How did the Battle of the Atlantic play out in Britain? How much were people interested in what was going on in the Battle of the Atlantic and how much impact did it have on their lives?
2: When ships went down... People noticed it. Nella Last, who I use quite extensively, was mm-hmm. an extraordinary diarist, and I use her reflections. and She had these sort of nightmares about people drowning in the ocean. But there wasn't a great deal of coverage given to it. When there was a major success, when they in the Atlantic got in the spring of 1941, got three of the U-boat aces who were no, whose names were known about. They were they were hailed as heroes at home. They won the Iron Cross and mm. Leaves and they would be taken to Berlin and they would be garlanded by Hitler himself. They were national heroes. When they arrived back at their base, they'd be, they'd be greeted by girls garlanding them with flowers and the bands would play. So when three of these went down in quick succession, notably Kretschmer, who was probably the most gifted of them all, Shetka, Prin, and and Kretschmer were all lost. That was treated as, a, as a, a reported trial. But, in general, it was very underreported, and Churchill required significant censorship of the fact that U-boats were sinking Allied cargo ships and, and neutral cargo ships, because he was extremely worried about two things. One is the paucity of good news. The very few U-boat crews that were captured, The very small number that were actually destroyed compared with what was the huge tonnage lost you know hundreds of thousands of tons month after month they had to do some reporting of it but he delayed it and they brought it out in, in a way calculated to minimize the impact so the british public did not really know a great deal about the seawall i think that, that was exacerbated because it wasn't covered very extensively because It was away, out at sea, it was ships, you know, very few reporters. I mean the reporters were sent in the U boats, but there's no there's very little systematic coverage of the either in the newspapers or on radio, of the Atlantic convoys our knowledge of is based on the, the written record.
3: That must have been difficult for those who were involved in this and yeah. also their families to feel this part of the ward wasn't getting recognition.
2: That I can only really speculate I imagine that's true, I haven't sort of looked at that closely but I, it must have been very frustrating that people didn't realise and word of mouth of course got round that this was happening because word of mouth was very important and and contributed to you know, Whitehall's anxiety just like on the German side, word of mouth from the front in in Russia was a cause of great anxiety to the intelligence services in Germany because anything that was negative tended to potentially threaten morale. It must have had an impact. I mean, it was bound to have a, an impact. I have a great deal of sympathy for the merchant crews in this. They were they were sort of disregarded because they didn't fit into a nice, neat compartment like the, the Royal Navy, the Royal Naval Reserve, Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. It's very interesting and pathetic, actually, in retrospect. You know, the Royal Navy tells you the spies, the Royal Naval Reserve. The Royal Naval Reserve tells you the spies, the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. The merchant convoys were basically forgotten. They were, they were basically forgotten and ignored, the merchant. And as you probably know, um, in the case of the Arctic convoys, it wasn't until 2012 that they finally got their campaign medals properly delivered after a long campaign by the merchant seamen's union. It's as if somehow they... It, I think it's a sort of category problem. For the very, very unimaginative Ministry of Defence, they just didn't, or the naval, naval department, they just didn't fit into anything neatly. And a lot of them were foreigners too. I mean, there were Chinese amongst them, there were sailors of fortune, some of them. They lived, you know, they had nothing. They were taken on, when they came off, they were cashiered until they got the next... I think they had a, week, they had a, a, a week's leave, then they were on the dole, and they, they had very few possessions, they had to take those on board with them. Very often if the ship was shot up and they were rescued and uh, they lost all their possessions. They had a very rough time, they were very low paid. I
3: think there's been a bone of contention ever since from all of yeah, them, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, you know, Even today, probably,
2: for yeah. the few survivors. Yeah, they are now finally honoured. They are now finally properly honoured, but it's taken 70 years to do it. It's <laughs> rather a long time, and nearly all of them were dead. Not all of them, nearly all of them were dead. A tiny handful lived long enough to be so honoured. I mean, tiny, you know, a dozen or so.
3: Just finally, do you, is there anything you, you hope that your readers will take away from this book in terms of changing their perceptions of the battle?
2: I hope that the story I tell, and it's a narrative, it is a, an extraordinarily dramatic and powerful history, the story itself, and I hope I've told it in a way that brings that alive. And that, in the process, they realise how vital the Battle of the Atlantic was, how it's impossible to understand the Second World War without appreciating the Battle of the Atlantic, that individuals demonstrated extraordinary resilience, tenacity and guts on both sides that their political leaders were often at odds over how best to combat the threat in the case of the Allies, how best to defeat the convoys in the case of the Germans, the Axis. The Atlantic was a lifeline. It was the carotid artery on which Britain depended for survival and its capacity to prosecute the war. And I hope the people reading this book will see that it wasn't just a, a motorway across the Atlantic. It was a very dangerous minefield through which it was a great mercy that the ships in the end triumphed and the Allies triumphed.
3: That was Jonathan Dimbleby. The Battle of the Atlantic, How the Allies Won the War, is out now in the UK, published by Viking. And in the US, it is due to be published next spring by Oxford University Press. And you can read more from this interview in the Christmas edition of BBC History magazine, which goes on sale today. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on Victorian poverty, Elizabeth I's rivalry with Mary, Queen of Scots, the medieval history behind Game of Thrones, and the Titanic, among other things. You can get hold of our Christmas edition in all good news agents and our many digital formats.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster.
3: Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason.
0: A vast archive of Winston Churchill's speeches and writings has been added to a United Nations list of humanity's most important records. The Churchill papers, which include the former Prime Minister's wartime speeches, have been added to the International Memory of the World Register run by UNESCO to highlight the importance of the world's historic documents. The Register which was established 20 years ago to preserve important documents, features more than 450 items, including Magna Carta, the Bayer Tapestry and Mappamundi. The Churchill papers in total number more than one million and they are held in a state-of-the-art archive at Churchill College, Cambridge. The papers will remain at the College once added to the UNESCO Register. In other news a senior Druid is to seek a judicial review over a government decision allowing ancient human remains from Stonehenge to be kept in a museum. Cremated bones were unearthed at the prehistoric site in 2008 by archaeologist Mike Parker Pearson. A licence allowing them to go on display expired last month, but has since been extended. Senior Druid King Arthur Pendragon believes the bones are from members of the Royal Line and wants to see them reburied. In 2011, he lost a High Court bid to have the bones reinterred. The items will be held in storage until the bones are transferred to Salisbury Museum in April next year. Mr Pendragon this week said he will apply for the repatriation of the bones when they are moved to the museum and will then apply for a judicial review. The remains of more than 40 bodies, thought to be at least 5,000 years old, were removed from the burial site at Stonehenge in 2008. Meanwhile, ancient Egyptian artefacts that have lain submerged under the sea for more than 1,000 years are to go on display next year at the British Museum. The treasures, which include huge statues, hieroglyphic tablets and golden jewellery, belong to Heracleon and Canopus cities built on the ground of the Nile Delta and which vanished in around 800 AD. An array of items was discovered in 1996 by divers in the mouth of the Nile and it has taken almost two decades to recover them, the Daily Mail reports. The objects will go on display at the British Museum from May to November next year in an exhibition titled Sunken Cities, Egypt's Lost World. The exhibition will also feature items from the museum's own archives, alongside objects on special loan from Egyptian authorities.
3: Before our next interview, here's a reminder about our BBC History magazine events, which are taking place in February. On Saturday the 27th and Sunday the 28th of that month at Bristol's Shed Museum, we're holding two-day events themed around Roman Britain and the First World War in 1916. Each day includes a star-studded lineup of speakers, plus a buffet lunch. If you'd like to find out more, or to purchase tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Next Tuesday, the 8th of December, on BBC4, the first episode of a new three-part history of Spain is due to air. Presented by the historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, the series charts Spain's past from the ancient world until the present day. The producer is Marion Milne, and I had the chance to speak with her a few days ago to get the lowdown on the series. I began by asking her how the project had come about in the first place.
4: As I'm sure you're aware, Seabag has done three previous series for BBC4. Uh, the first one was based on his book, Jerusalem, which is was the biography of a city, Jerusalem. And I think that was two one-hours. And then I think the BBC could see that there was this really interesting kind of marriage between a uh, Seabag himself describes himself. He's both a he comes as a historian and a traveller to these places. So they're a kind of nice mixture of a little bit of a guided tour, but with this amazingly well-informed historian taking you through the streets and so on. So that worked very well with Jerusalem. Then BBC Four came up with two more series which were city-based. One was on Rome and one was on um It was called A Tale of Three Cities and it was Byzantium, Constantinople and Istanbul. So obviously all the same city, but in three different incarnations. So when I was taken on to do this series on Spain, I was wondering, "Hmm, I wonder which city is next. But the decision was made in-house at the BBC to to widen the brief and actually have a whole country. Um, Although with Spain the very early history, and that's always Seabag's signature, that he starts early and he starts BC. A lot of the early history is around southern Spain. So the first two episodes are very much Andalusia. And then the final episode, which is from the 16th century onwards, uh, is Madrid. And that's when Madrid was created by Philip II. And so on. So that's how it happened. It was, how do we find another vehicle for Seabag? And Spain was felt to have the right, richness and depth of history for his his unique touch.
3: And, and as you said, obviously, he's a historian and writer before he was a presenter. In what ways is it different working with a historian, someone who's a historian first, than someone who's just a traditional TV presenter?
4: I think there's two differences. I think that with a historian, particularly someone who's just adept at presenting and is such fun, you can really push those pieces to camera. So they really drive the programme. And you know, with some presenters, other things drive the programme as well as pieces to camera. You know, it might be action of some kind. It might be encounters with people. It might be you know the actual journey. Now, we do all these things because obviously as a director, you always want to be as visual as you can. But I think the thing that really, it really surprised me with Seabag, when we put the scripts together with him, you know, there were a lot of pieces to camera in the scripts. And I thought, well, you know, we'll shoot them and they're great. But I'm not sure we're going to use all of them just because it felt for me quite sort of dense and slightly not heavy because he's got that great light touch. There just seemed to be a lot of words in the script. Do you know we used just about everything? And I think that's testimony to him that he's he's a wordsmith. It's like being on this incredible I don't want to say illustrated lecture because as a director, why would I say that? Because obviously I pride myself on great pictures. But there is something about the way he he vocalizes everything, the way he puts things into words. You just want to keep listening. And then the challenge is is to have great pictures and great, great, great things to go alongside it on the screen. So I guess that's the difference. He really, I'm not saying other presenters don't know their stuff, but often they're learning as they go. It's a its a kind of an encounters journey in which they find out. Uh, whereas with, with Seabag, it's very much he knows that he's going to tell you. Um, and it's often very unusual, very interesting facts and people that you vaguely heard of or places that you vaguely know. But he kind of gets right underneath, which is, you know, I think it makes for, it's really compelling and really, really informative.
3: Clearly, Spain's had such a long and diverse history. How much of a challenge was it to try and condense that into just three hours?
4: It's quite a challenge, um, I must say. Um, and yet, when I was taken on um, in January, there was, you know, there was a serious proposal and there was a bit of a plan, but it was all, you know, it was very much up for grabs. And I thought, well, the first thing I've got to do is get my head around all this. You know, when I meet Seabag, I need to look as if at least I vaguely know what's going on here. And it struck me very quickly. And the nice thing was that Seabag felt the same way, that actually there's three, there are three very distinct phases in Spanish history. And that really lent itself to 3-1 hours, as, you know, as luck would have it. So the first phase, um, and this is what the program's actually called, is a phase of conquest. So from the time of the Phoenicians onwards, really all the way through to 1031, when the Muslim Caliphate ended in Cordoba, the Iberian Peninsula was a place that was conquered. It was in people's sights. So the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, Phoenicians, Greeks, Carthaginians, Romans, the Visigoths, the Vandals, And then the Muslim conquest, which arguably left the greatest mark of all. So you've got one whole episode that's just all about conquest. And then episode two is the mirror image. It's reconquest. And that takes us from 1031 all the way through to 1492, when Ferdinand and Isabella have uh, expelled the last, they they, they expelled the Jews and they've effectively closed down the last Muslim kingdom in Spain, which was Granada the city-state of Granada. They've defeated it by laying siege to the city. So at that moment, the reconquest of Spain is kind of, it's complete. And then the last programme is called Nation. So from 1492, actually slightly later, sort of beginning of the 16th, right the way through to the modern day, that's how Spain defined itself as a nation by pulling the country together and creating all the the institutions and so on, eventually a constitution, eventually a parliamentary democracy, etc. So it did rather neatly fall into three phases, and that's how we boiled it down.
3: I guess here in Britain and and around the world, people have certain preconceptions about Spain, maybe because they've been there on holiday or because of the food or music or the football. Are you trying to challenge any, any of those views with this series?
4: Well, I think again, the great thing about Simon Seabag Montefiore is he's just got this fantastically light touch. So, this is, you know, this is proper history. It's very, you know, BBC4 history. And again, there's a sense always kind of off camera that there's a very different Spain to the Spain that we're seeing. And I think there's a, a kind of implied invitation to those who spend their time on the coast, and that's not knocking the coast. We go to Gibraltar, it's really pretty. Malaga is actually a, a scene of um, when the Umayyads return to Spain. Malaga is where they land. So there is, again, there's this implied sense that you think you know Spain, actually you don't. What's going on in the interior, because mostly we're in the interior, gives us a deepening and a, and a depth of history that perhaps if you if you don't stray from the coast you might miss. Having said that, the series begins in Cadiz, which is not really a tourist city uh, for the British, but it begins in Cadiz and one of the first things that Seabag does is takes a boat to an island, which is where Hannibal sought the blessing of the gods, of the the Carthaginian god Melkar before his famous invasion of Clean and attempt to take Rome. And that island is surrounded by, it's it's basically it's a windsurfer's paradise. So you kind of get the modern Spain is is abutting all the time, but it's very much, you know, look deeper, turn away from the obvious tourist resorts, come inland and see what you find. And that's great because it's such a rich history.
3: We visited some absolutely amazing locations during the filming of this series. Did you have any particular favourites?
4: Well, I've got to say, I think Seville, what a fabulous city. I didn't know this. I had no idea just how fascinating Seville is because just outside Seville is the Roman city of Italica, which is incredibly well preserved. So you've got the Roman bit. And the reason it's so well preserved is that it's on the Guadalquivir River, uh, or it was Italica. And then the river changed its course. It's on a very flat basin. So that allowed it to move. So Italica was abandoned, meaning that it's a brilliantly preserved Roman town with no buildings on top of it. And then Seville was built. And Seville was both Visigothic, so the cathedral some of it kind of dates all the way back to those times and also it then became this um the almohad city so this very austere fundamentalist islamic sect so it's got layer upon layer of history so you know roman just outside then very early christian then almohad and then ferdinand and isabella in the alcazar which was originally muslim they created these wonderful they used muslim styles or arabic style to create mosaic rooms that's where columbus came to talk to isabella about the con- about the discovery of the americas so seville just has these it just has so many layers and of course the great thing about spain is that because it, it was neutral in World War II, obviously it had its appalling civil war before then, and that's something we feature in episode three. But the cities, by and large, are just so well preserved, and Seville is, is like that. It's just got this incredible heart and incredible depth uh, and great culture and music, and it's just a great city.
3: You just touched earlier on the Spanish Civil War. I mean, that's surely one of the most controversial aspects of Spain's history, particularly in the country itself, How did you navigate an issue like that where there are still incredibly strong feelings?
4: I think that what Seabag did, which was very, very astute, because it's such a tricky subject, the Spanish Civil War, because he focuses so much on personality, the great personalities of history. So if you go all the way back in the series... It'll start to make sense what I'm about to say. So, you know, you go from Hannibal, we've got you know, El Cid, um, Philip II. Now, he was very keen on Franco being a big character. And there were lots of debates about that, because obviously Franco is looked back on, you know, some people see him as another Stalin or another Hitler And, you know, he was unquestionably a fascist and the way he took power after the Republican government was legitimately elected through a civil war clearly has left deep scars on Spain. And yet you can't ignore Franco. And I think, again, because we have this, this, the beauty of deep history, Franco saw himself as, you know, I've talked about conquest Franco came from North Africa to rescue his country. So in some ways, he was like the Muslim invaders. He came across the sea. He came to the south and made his way north to Madrid. When he took the city of Toledo, that was incredibly significant in Spanish history because that was a city that was won back from Islam by a Christian king called Alfonso at the beginning of the Reconquest. So. Franco saw himself as the saviour of Spain against, as he saw it, the horrors of republicanism and the godlessness, because don't forget how powerful Christianity was in uniting the country under Ferdinand and Isabella. So when you start to see the civil war in the historical context, you can really see why Franco attracted the support he did, even though he attracted by and large the animosity of so many outside Spain and I'm thinking the international brigades but within Spain there was a real groundswell and then to be balanced we filmed in two places we filmed in a place called Belchite which is a city destroyed and left as it was at the time of the civil war which is harrowing and incredibly moving a whole um, a whole town completely destroyed and left so no one will ever forget the violence of that war. And then secondly, we filmed in the Valley of the Fallen, which is Franco's grandiose, it's a monument to fascism. And by doing that, you could see the kind of pomp of the man and the need to justify himself and his constant historical references and the real cost, which is Belchite, which is destroyed and in ruins. So I think we, again, allowed, we allowed the viewer to make up their own minds. And there's another little story which I'll tell you about Franco, which um, I hope I'm not giving away a trade secret from episode three. But I, I love this story. I always thought before making the series that Spain kept out of World War II that Franco didn't want his people to suffer anymore. And yet that's not true at all. Franco was desperate to be part of the club of fascist dictators. He took a train from madrid and we slightly recreate this story in episode three and met hitler in a place called hendai and was desperate to be part of the axis powers but the price that he demanded and again he was rather um delusional franco he said he wanted his empire back that the price for helping the axis powers was to have his empire back and hitler well clearly didn't want to know and uh Franco left empty handed and, and Hitler remarks, what a frustrating, I think he says something like he wanted to pull his eyebrows out. I mean, it was just ridiculous, ridiculous meeting. And again, that that's something I didn't know before working on the series. And it just tells us an awful lot about Franco's state of mind.
3: It's interesting how much religion plays a part in Spain's history, seemingly more than was any other country in Europe, even from the Muslim conquests, and then forced conversion of Jews and Muslims, and obviously, the Catholic dominance later on—it just seems to be so powerful.
4: Completely, completely, and it kind of reminds me of filming. I mean, I—I I never filmed in in Europe before the wall came down. I just kind of got into television just a little bit after that. But when you're filming in Catholic Spain, and when you're filming in in the Catholic churches, it's such a powerful institution. Still, even though, as I say, that its stranglehold on on the on on government and political life is is now lessened. But it's amazing how it kind of feels a bit like you imagine seeking permission to film in the Kremlin or something would have been under Soviet Russia because the, the church is bureaucratic, powerful and it's hard to film in these places because they don't need you. They've got plenty of money, but they are such a strong entity. And I think that's always very indicative when people... They don't need the media. They don't seek the media. So the Catholic Church in Spain, I think, is still quite... I got a sense filming there. It's still quite closed and and extremely powerful. But when we mention the other religions, the Muslim influence is so strong right the way we look at this through to language. There are words in the Spanish language that come from Arabic. So the word for oil... Asaite comes from olive juice in Arabic. In architecture, everywhere you go, you see the Muslim influence, the way buildings, even if buildings have been added to, like the Mesquita, the um, mosque slash cathedral in Cordoba, where a Catholic cathedral has been put right in the middle of a mosque, you still see all the mosque around it in the layout around city walls where the the use of water in gardens. So the landscape, terraced farming, the landscape is still very Islamic. The kind of crops that are are, um, cultivated, a lot of which came over with the Muslim conquest. Music, we interviewed the professor of guitar at the Cordoba Music Institute, who told us that flamenco guitar strumming came in, at the time of the Muslim conquest, because before that people used to pluck with pheasant feathers and the idea of strumming was brought in and a particularly flamenco type strumming. So the, the culture that goes along with these religious incursions, the, the legacy just lives on in all aspects of Spanish life.
3: And there was there's one amazing bit in, in the second episode, I think, where um, Seabag finds out something about his own family. Was that, was that a complete surprise to him or had that kind of been researched beforehand?
4: Sebag, as his name implies, Simon Sebag Montefiore, um, comes from both an Ashkenazi Jewish family, which is Sebag, and a southern European Jewish family, Montefiore, which comes from the Italian Mountain of Flowers. And as far as everyone knew on Sebag's side, they were descended from Italians because very early on, um, I said to him, did he think there was any Sephardic Jewish in his history, and obviously Sephardic Jewish being the Spanish Jews. And he didn't think there were. And then we thought we'd do a bit of research on our own. And we uncovered that, in fact, there's a whole other branch who go back earlier than the Montefiores, who were indeed Spanish. But they were expelled in 1492. They went to Portugal. Their name was Carvajal, although they they did change their name at one point to Carvajal. And that was very common because people changed their name to avoid persecution. And they were secret Jews in that they were conversos, in that they only practiced their Judaism in private. To the the public, it appeared that they were Christian. And they were a very notable family, so much so that the Carvajals, after the conquest of Mexico, so round about the reign of Philip II, they moved to Mexico and indeed, Louis Carvajal became governor of Mexico. So they were a very senior family. And there was jealousy from somebody else in Mexico who uh, also, I think, you know, sought political prominence. And he denounced the family as secret Jews, which is pretty devastating because that meant one whole generation went on trial in an auto de fe, because as you know, the Inquisition had these public show trials. And they happened in the colonies, in the Spanish colonies as well, which is something I wasn't really aware of. I mean, we filmed in Seville where they happened, in the main square in Seville, but they happened in the colonies. And we managed to sort of trace all this down to a museum of Sephardic history in Córdoba. And we took Seabag there and they had his family tree and... They were able to show him through the records of Mexico City what had actually happened to his own ancestors, direct line 12 generations earlier. So his grandmother, 12 times removed, and she and her siblings were all put on trial, all found guilty and all burnt at the stake, which for Seabag to find that out was, to say the least, a bit of a shock. We're very proud of having turned up that story, but also I'm very impressed by how Seabag responded because we let him know there was something about his family. And I asked him if he'd like to know in advance, and he said no. So it was a genuine surprise. And what came out of it was he had incredible pride that these ancestors of his were secret Jews. He said he was very proud to be descended from secret Jews. And he also says in completely unrehearsed piece to camera that even though that sort of fashion for, I think, what he called lacrimose history, he's not that great a fan of. He genuinely felt really moved to discover just how brave and how poignant this whole story was. I think it's a, a quite a special piece of television, particularly as an objective historian, where you can actually f- access that personal story.
3: It suddenly makes the whole series more personal to him, doesn't it, when he finds out his own family were there and And also had a very very sort of complicated life in Spain.
4: Exactly. But to have been burnt at the stake, stripped naked and burnt at the stake. One of his great, 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 you know, 12 times great aunts, she said to the jury, sort of mock jury, she said to the mock jury, if I confess to being Jewish, will you spare me the indignity of being stripped naked before I'm executed? And they said that they would spare her the indignity. So she confessed And then they just stripped her naked anyway. I think those kind of stories are, I think what they make us realise is that there is kind of nothing new. That these kind of atrocities have been going on for a very long time.
3: That was Marion Milne. Blood and Gold, The Making of Spain begins on Tuesday the 8th of December at 9pm on BBC4. And should be available on the BBC iPlayer soon afterwards. And that is pretty much it for this week. But please do listen in next time, where we'll be talking about the history of wildlife and red hair through the ages. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.